Well, hey friends, thanks for joining us today. I'm coming to you from our Wilmington campus. It may not look like it, but there's actually a lot happening on this campus and all of our campuses these days. Even though we can't be together in person, groups are continuing to meet online. Kids and students are connecting with their leaders and with each other. There are uh, prayer gatherings and Facebook groups and scavenger hunts and lots and lots of service to the community. So let me just encourage you to stay connected to your local campus during this summer virtual season. And if you're not connected to a campus yet and you'd like to get more involved, just reach out to us, let us know, and we'll help you take your next steps. As we like to say, the buildings may be closed, but the church is open, and so are our hearts. So, well, one night a couple of months ago, Karen and I were watching the evening news, and the news was especially grim that night. It was at the height of the COVID outbreak here in Boston. Unemployment was going through the roof. Racial tensions were beginning to simmer. There was some conflict happening in other parts of the world. And at one point, Karen turned to me and said, are we in the end times? Now I should point out that neither she nor I are likely to ask that question very often. We have both lived through enough false alarms to not get too caught up in that kind of thinking very often. But I think we'd all agree that we find ourselves asking that question more and more these days. I mean, think about it. A global pandemic, empty streets and stadiums, economic meltdown, extreme weather events, rioting in the streets of cities here and around the world, locusts, a plague of locusts in Africa, and churches sitting quiet and empty on Sunday mornings all across the world. And it reads like the script of an end times rapture movie. So you can't blame a person for asking, are we in the end times? And if so, what should we do about that? That's the question we'd like to go after here today as we finish up our series, What Now? What now? Now that the world has been turned upside down. What should we be thinking now about the end of the world and Christ's return? And maybe more importantly, how should we be living now? What should we be doing now? So one more time, we're going to turn to the writings of Peter, a follower of Jesus and one of the founding fathers of the early church. We already pointed out that Peter was writing in a time of social and political upheaval. The world was changing, believers were scattered, persecution was increasing. The future felt very uncertain. So as he comes to the end of this second letter, Peter writes, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Now we've pointed out along the way that Peter is writing as a pastor, as a shepherd caring for his flock. And that's how we've been speaking to you in this series as well. As pastors who miss you, and our concern for how you're doing in these challenging 
times. A couple of mornings ago, I was out for a run and a car was approaching me coming the other way. And as the car passed by, the driver reached a hand out the window and waved and, and shouted, Hey, Pastor Brian. And I actually recognized the driver, so I shouted back, Hey, T. And in a moment, we were past each other. And I found myself wishing I had flagged him down and said, how are you doing? How's your family? Are you still working? Are, are you staying healthy? As I thought about that, I found myself thinking the same questions about all of you, wishing I could flag you down and ask you those questions. How are you? How are you doing? How's your family in these days? It made me glad as a knowing that I would have a chance to speak to you today from this passage to, to, to offer you words of encouragement for these challenging days. And so along with Pastor Peter here, I'd like to encourage you to, to wholesome thinking and living when it comes to the end times. Because the truth is, these are the end times. According to the Bible, the end times began the moment Jesus ascended into heaven, promising to come back. Nothing else has to happen before Christ returns and, and brings, finishes what he had begun and brings this era of human history to a close. So what should we be thinking? And more importantly, what should we be doing now? Now, now that we know that the world as we know it will come to an end someday. Let's turn to this final chapter, this second letter, and see what Pastor Peter has to say to us. Let's continue reading at verse 3 of chapter 3. Peter says, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Well, it turns out there are two dangers when it comes to thinking about Christ's return and the end of the world. And the first danger is apathy. The danger of not taking it seriously. Of thinking that things will just continue on their way. Maybe getting better, maybe getting worse, but with no end or purpose in sight. And apparently, apathy was a problem for, for believers in the latter half of the first century. Remember, this letter is likely written about 65, 67 AD. So it's been 30 years since Christ left, promising to return someday. And after three decades, with no sign of his return, and with things getting harder and harder for the Christians, some of them were beginning to wonder and even doubt if he ever would actually come back. And false teachers were beginning to mock and scoff the idea that God was actually going to intervene and do something dramatic. Life just happens, they said. History just happens. And here we are, a couple of thousand years later, and still no sign of Christ's return. And so it would be easy for us to wonder and even doubt if he's ever actually going to come back. 
As I said earlier, many of us have lived through a lot of false alarms about the second coming of Christ, and I'll talk about them more in a minute. And I'll have to confess that I'm, I'm prone to apathy sometimes when it comes to the second coming. I find I don't think about it very often. And when I do think about it, it's hard to imagine the world as we know it just, just coming to an end. But this pandemic has changed that. It's gotten our attention, hasn't it? It's awakened us to the idea that things don't just keep on going the way they've always gone since the beginning of creation. I mean, who would have thought the world could come to a stop the way it has these past few months? Who could have imagined shuttered stores and restaurants and factories and offices and churches? No shopping, no traveling, no school, no weddings, no funerals, no family reunions, no baseball. Perhaps we're, we understand, like never before, that the world as we know it will come to an end someday. And that's what Peter tries to tell his readers. Speaking about these false teachers, he writes, but they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. He's reminding these scoffers that history doesn't just happen. It began by an act of God when, when He brought the universe into existence and has been directed by the hand of God ever since. In the following verse, he reminds them of the great flood of Noah's day, which, which nearly brought humanity to an end, but then gave humanity a fresh start. Peter could just as easily have reminded them of, of the exodus from Egypt, of the glory days of King David, or the miraculous return from exile, or, or the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. The point he's making is that God has intervened many times in human history to accomplish his purposes and, and direct the course of history. Why should we doubt that he can do it again? And so Peter warns us against the dangers of apathy, of not taking seriously the promise that Christ will return, that he will finish what he's begun, that he will bring this era of human history to a close, and establish the kingdom of God in all of its fullness. Some of us will remember a, a song by the rock band R.E.M. from back in the 1980s. It was a song about earthquakes and hurricanes and wars and riots and fear and hate and corruption and greed and bad religion. It's the end of the world as we know it, the chorus went, and I feel fine. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Now, was the band mocking people who didn't take these things seriously? Or were they declaring their own indifference in the face of impending doom? I am hardly an authority on 80s pop culture, so I'll let you figure it out for yourselves. The point I'm trying to make, and the point I think Peter is trying to make, is to beware of apathy when you think about the end of the world and the return of Christ. 
God has in fact intervened dramatically in human history before, and he'll do it again. And so the proper response to apathy, Peter's response to apathy, is to remember that someday the end will come. This era of history will come to a close. So the first danger in thinking about the end of the world is apathy, not taking it seriously. The second danger is obsession, taking it so seriously that you can't think about anything else. And apparently some believers in the early church were so convinced that Christ was going to come back in their lifetimes, it was all they could think about. And when it didn't happen, it really rocked their faith. Let's pick up the reading at at verses 8 and 9. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow concerning His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Don't get yourself tied up in knots about the timing of Christ's return, Peter says. It's not a productive use of your time. It's not something you can figure out or should even try to figure out. Now, Peter knows this firsthand. He heard Jesus say, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the Son himself. So Pastor Peter didn't want his readers obsessed with the timing of Christ's return because it could end up being a long time in coming. As I said earlier, I've lived through a lot of false alarms in my time. Back in the 1970s, there was a book called The Late Great Planet Earth that, that captured the imagination of young Christians in particular prompting many of them to drop out of college and sell their possessions so they could be ready for Christ to come back again. He didn't. In the 80s, it was a book entitled 88 Reasons the Rapture Could Happen in 1988. Copies were directly mailed to 200,000 pastors across the country, including me. Believers, some of them, quit their jobs so they could focus full-time on evangelizing their friends and their family. Spoiler alert, the rapture didn't happen in 1988. In the 90s, there was a book by a well-known popular Bible teacher that proved from the scriptures that Christ was going to return in 1994. Now, that book nearly split our church back in New York. I had to preach a three-week series just to calm people down, and people still left over it. And then there was Y2K. Remember that? The turn of the millennium, when every computer on earth was going to crash at the stroke of midnight, causing planes to fall from the sky, and your automatic coffee maker to explode on the kitchen counter. Y2K came and went, and nothing happened. In the 2000s, it was Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series, 13 bestsellers about Christ's return and the end of the world. And after all those false alarms, we're still here. (laughs) Christ hasn't come. 
Now, did some good come from all of that? Well, sure. Some people did come to faith in Christ. Some, some, some believers were energized to share their faith more freely. But all that fear and panic and controversy took a toll on many people's faith and many churches that distract, distracted and disrupted church life and, and, and people's lives following Christ. So that's why Peter warns his readers and us not to be obsessed with the return of Christ and not to doubt he's coming when it doesn't happen for a long time. For one thing, Peter says God's view of time is a whole lot different than ours. What seems like a long time to us is a very short time in light of eternity. So no matter how it feels, Sometimes, God is always on time. Second thing Peter reminds us of is that God is patient. He's patient. The longer he waits to bring this era of human history to a close, the more opportunity people have to turn to him in faith, the more opportunities believers have to share the gospel around the world. The fact that Christ hasn't come yet doesn't mean that he's not present and active in the world today. It just means that he's taking his time. He's changing lives. He's building his church. He's advancing his kingdom one day at a time. It's, it's funny how your, your perspective on the return of Christ changes as you get older. As a young person, I was in no rush for Christ to return. I mean, like every young person, I had stuff I wanted to do in life. I wanted to get my driver's license. I wanted to go off to college. As a young adult, I found I, 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 wanted, to, I wanted to raise a family. I wanted to, to, to build my career. I wanted to make my mark on the world. There's nothing wrong with that. God, God made us to live and enjoy and make the most of our lives in this world. But I find that later in life, having seen so much of the pain and heartache in the world, having come to understand how, how broken the world is and how unable we are to fix things. As I fear sometimes for the world that my grandchildren will grow up in, I find myself more eager for Christ to return, to bring all this heartache and brokenness to an end, to, to put things right once and for all. And I think it's safe to say that for many of us as Americans, it's, it's a whole lot easier not to be anxious about Christ's return, where for many people in the world, many hurting and suffering and struggling people, it can't come soon enough. And maybe he will come soon, but maybe he won't. Maybe it will be a long time. So don't be obsessed with the second coming and the end of the world, Peter says. It could be a long time. God is still present. God is still active. And he will come when the time is right. So when it comes to thinking about the end of the world and Christ's return, there are two dangers. Apathy, not thinking about it enough. And obsession, thinking about it too much. Now, I don't know which one you're prone to, but neither one is productive. So the proper response to apathy, Peter's response to apathy, is to remember 
that the end will come. And Peter's response to obsession is to remember that it could be a long time. So that's how we should be thinking about the end of the world. But what should we be doing? How should we be living? I mean, that's the heart behind this letter that Peter is writing, and that's the heart behind this series. Like Pastor Peter, we want to help all of you and ourselves know how should we live now, now that the world is changing dramatically around us, now that the future feels very uncertain, now that we know that things may not just go on as they always have. How should we live? Let's look at Peter's final paragraph. Chapter 3, verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So as Peter concludes his letter, he offers his readers and us something better than apathy and better than obsession. What he offers us is hope. Now he doesn't use that word in particular, but he invites us twice in this chapter to look forward to Christ's return and the end of the world as we know it. Because we understand that it will usher usher in a new and better world. Now, you probably noticed there are some challenging and even troubling verses here. This is one of very few places in Scripture that talk about the destruction of the heavens and the earth. Now, we know that a new heaven and a new earth is coming, but usually when the Bible talks about that, it describes it in terms of of transformation of the present order, of restoration to its original splendor rather than talking about about destruction and replacement. If I can borrow some terminology from HGTV, it's it's less of a teardown and more of an extreme makeover, perhaps. The Bible typically describes a sense of continuity from the the age that, that is and to the age to come. Revelation 21 and 22, for instance, describes a new creation that bears similarities to the original creation. Talks about a garden and and rivers and trees of life. So, is Peter describing a literal destruction of the universe, like we might see in some global nuclear holocaust? Or is he using the language of fire and heat figuratively to describe radical purification and, and transformation? In other words, will will the earth itself be destroyed, the material earth? Or is it the broken down earthly structures and systems that will be destroyed? It's a complicated question, but I tend toward the latter view. That Peter is using figurative language and imagery, very common at the time, to describe radical spiritual transformation and renewal of all things. The important thing to focus on is the end result, which is a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. 
Now, you know what righteousness means? It means beauty. It means justice. It means peace and harmony. It means wholeness and wellness and all the good things God had in mind when he brought this universe and humanity into existence. Righteousness means that everything that's wrong with the world will be put right. Everything that's broken in this world will be put back together. And that's the hope that Pastor Peter was offering to his readers. In the words of the great scholar N.T. Wright, Peter was offering the belief that history was going somewhere under the guidance of God and that where it was going was toward God's new world of justice, healing, and hope. And I hope that's as encouraging to you as it must have been to those early Christians. I hope it it helps in these troubling and uncertain times to know that as bad as things can get, as broken as this world can be, God is present and active and guiding us towards new and better days. That's hope. And here's the really exciting thing. We don't just sit around and wait for this to happen. We actually get to join God in bringing about this new and better world. Look again at verses 11 and 12. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Did you catch that phrase, and speed its coming? There was this belief among Jews of of Peter's day that, that if the entire nation of Israel could keep the law perfectly for just one day, then the kingdom would come. Now, that's not really a biblical idea because we know that law-keeping is not what brings the kingdom about anyway. But, but Peter is telling us that we can actually hasten the arrival of this new and better day by joining God in his redemptive, restorative work in this world. He's telling us that as we work for justice in the world, as we proclaim the gospel to every nation on earth as we feed the hungry and care for the sick and and take in orphans and bless children and plant churches and translate the scriptures and make disciples as we do those things we are helping to bring about that new and glorious day that Christ will establish in its fullness when he comes again. I don't know about you, but I find that exciting. I mean, that's a reason to get out of bed in the morning. And I think Peter found it exciting too. Listen to how he concludes this section. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. So how should we live now? Now that we know the end will come, we should make the most of the time we've got. That's what Peter is saying by that phrase, make every effort. 
So what should we be thinking now? We should be thinking that the end will come and that it could be a long time. What should we be doing now? Making the most of the time we've got. It turns out Peter didn't have a lot of time. Most scholars agree that Peter died for his faith, that he was martyred under uh, the Emperor Nero just a short time after he wrote this letter, maybe a year or two. There's a, tr- there's a tradition that he was crucified upside down. There's no real evidence to support that tradition. But however it happened, Peter sensed that he didn't have much time and he wanted to make the most of what he had. And he encourages his readers and us to do the same. Now, Hopefully we have more than a year or two and hopefully we won't be laying down our lives for our faith. So what does it look like for us now to, to make the most of the time we've got? As I thought about that, it occurred to me that it means doing the things we've been learning about in this series these past few months. It means remembering who we are, that we are sons and daughters of the living God. It means investing in our families, loving and serving the people who are closest to us. It means building the church finding our place as spiritual stones in this holy house that he's building. It means practicing goodness, bringing beauty and peace to people in the world around us. It means pursuing truth, digging deeply into God's word. It means taking hold of suffering, believing that God can turn it and use it for our good and for the good of the world. And it means making the most of the time we've got by joining God in his work. And we don't have to do those things. We get to do those things. We get to look forward to that better day and speed its coming. So friends, it it would be easy to be discouraged in these days. Will we ever get past this coronavirus and get back to life as we used to know it? Will we ever overcome the racial strife and division and injustice that we can't seem to get free of? Will the church survive these many months without being able to meet and gather and worship in person? Will there ever be baseball again? (laughs) I can't promise anything on that last one. But I can promise, because God has promised, that everything that is wrong with this world will one day be put right. That he will build his church and that people who put their faith in Christ will become the good and glorious people that he made us to be. Now chances are you and I will not pass each other on the street this week. But if we did, I would flag you down and I would encourage you with these words. Along with Pastor Peter, I would remind you that we are people of hope. And we don't have to give in to fear or panic or despair or hopelessness. And we can look forward to the future, believing that a new and better day is coming and that we get to contribute toward it. We know that whatever happens and whenever it happens, Our hope is in the living God who is present and active in human affairs and is guiding history towards a definite and glorious end.
whatever happens and whenever it happens. Our hope is in the living God who is present and active in human affairs and is guiding history towards a definite and glorious end. If you don't have that hope, if you don't know that you have a place in that new and coming kingdom, we would love to help you find it. Reach out to us. Send me an email at brian with a y at grace.org. I'd love to get a conversation started with you. But right now, let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the hope and encouragement that we have found in, in these letters, in your word to us. Thank you for the promise that you will come again and put right everything that's wrong with this world and with us. In the meantime, Lord, allow us to be people of hope and help in the world around us. As a pastor, Lord, I pray for everyone listening today. For those I know and love, for those I don't know yet, but still love. May you bless them today, Lord. May you fill them with hope. May you encourage them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks for listening, friends. Let's enjoy this next song, and then Pastor Tom from Foxborough will come and send us on our way.